يا ايها الناس انا خلقناكم من ذكر وانثى وجعلناكم شعوبا وقبائل لتعارفوا ان اكرمكم عند الله اتقاكم ان الله عليم قدير What you've just heard is verse 13 of chapter 49 from the final book of Revelation known as the Quran. The translation of the verse in English is as follows. O mankind, verily we have created you from a male and a female, and made you nations and tribes to know each other, and not to despise each other. Surely the most noble among you in God's sight is the most god-fearing in this verse god reminds us of our common origins and he points out that the differences were the tribal regional or racial were not meant to be sources of pride and pomp and glory but that this variety was for man's pleasure in knowing each other in our variety as we say variety is the spice of life by Allah creating us in so many different forms this is a means by which man may take pleasure in knowing each other and further it gives us a reminder of the greatness of God to be able to create man in so many various forms God then goes on to inform us that the true basis of superiority is that of piety or consciousness of god because it is the consciousness of god wherein man develops true righteousness man can only be righteous in a sense which is acceptable to god if it comes from his consciousness of god that he does things for the pleasure of god alone The tapes which you are about to hear have been prepared by the World Assembly of Muslim Youth and are read by Dawood Matthews. The topics covered are the following: what they say about Islam, Islam at a glance, the sword of Islam, the concept of God in Islam, the concept of worship in Islam. prophethood in islam what they say about muhammad what they say about the quran the moral system of islam human rights in islam and life after death in the name of allah the beneficent the merciful what they say about islam the islam that was revealed to muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him is the continuation and culmination of all the preceding revealed religions and hence it is for all times and all peoples this status of islam is sustained by glaring facts firstly there is no other revealed book extant in the same form and content as it was revealed secondly no other revealed religion has any convincing claim to provide guidance in all walks of human life for all times 
but Islam addresses humanity at large and offers basic guidance regarding all human problems. Moreover, it has withstood the test of 1400 years and has all the potentialities of establishing an ideal society as it did under the leadership of the last prophet, Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. It was a miracle that Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, could win even his toughest enemies to the fold of Islam without adequate material resources. Worshippers of idols, blind followers of the ways of forefathers, promoters of tribal feuds, abusers of human dignity and blood, became the most disciplined nation under the guidance of Islam and its prophet. Islam opened before them vistas of spiritual heights and human dignity by declaring righteousness as a sole criterion of merit and honor. Islam shaped their social, cultural, moral and commercial life with basic laws and principles which are most in conformity with human nature and hence applicable in all times as human nature does not change. It is so unfortunate that the Christian West, instead of sincerely trying to understand the phenomenal success of Islam during its earlier time, considered it as a rival religion. During the centuries of the Crusades this trend gained much force and impetus and huge literature was produced to tarnish the image of Islam. But Islam has begun to unfold its genuineness to the modern scholars whose bold and objective observations on Islam rely all the charges leveled against it by the so-called unbiased Orientalists. Here we furnish some observations on Islam by great and acknowledged non-Muslim scholars of modern times. Truth needs no advocates to plead on its behalf, but the prolonged malicious propaganda against Islam has created great confusion even in the minds of free and objective thinkers. We hope that the following observations would contribute to initiating an objective evaluation of Islam. The first quotation, It, Islam, replaced monkishness by manliness. It gives hope to the slave, brotherhood to mankind, and recognition of the fundamental facts of human nature. This was by Cameron Taylor in a paper before the Church Congress at Wolverhampton on October the 7th, 1887. It is quoted by Ahmed in The Preaching of Islam, on pages 71 and 72. Second quotation. Sense of justice is one of the most wonderful ideals of Islam because as I read in the Quran, I find those dynamic principles of life, not mystic but practical ethics for the daily conduct of life suited to the whole world. This was by Saladin Nader in Lectures on the Ideals of Islam. See the speechings and writings of Saladin Nader, Madras, 1918 page 167. Third quotation. History makes it clear, however, that the legend of fanatical Muslims sweeping through the world and forcing Islam at the point of the sword upon conquered races is one of the most fantastically absurd myths that historians have ever repeated. This is by De Lacey O'Leary in Islam at the Crossroads, published in London, 1923, page 8. Fourth quotation. But Islam has a still further service to render to the cause of humanity. It stands after all nearer to the realist East than Europe does, and it possesses a magnificent tradition of interracial understanding and cooperation. No other society has such a record of success in uniting an equality of status, of opportunity, and of endeavors so many and so various races of mankind. Islam has still the power to reconcile apparently irreconcilable elements of race and tradition. If ever the opposition of the great societies on East and West is to be replaced by cooperation, the mediation of Islam is an indispensable condition. In its hands lies very largely the solution of the problem with which Europe is faced in its relation with East. If they unite, the hope of a peaceful issue is immeasurably enhanced. But if Europe, by rejecting the cooperation of Islam, 
thrown it into the arms of its rivals, the issue can only be disastrous for both. This was by H.A.R. Kidd in Wither Islam, London, 1932, page 379. The fifth quotation. I have always held the religion of Muhammad in high estimation because of its wonderful vitality. It is the only religion which appears to me to possess that assimilating capacity to the changing phase of existence which can make itself appeal to every age. I have studied him, the wonderful man, and in my opinion, far from being an antichrist, he must be called the savior of humanity. I believe that if a man like him were to assume the dictatorship of the modern world, he would succeed in solving his problems in a way that would bring it the much needed peace and happiness. I have prophesied about the faith of Muhammad that it would be acceptable to the Europe of tomorrow as it is beginning to be acceptable to the Europe of today. This is George Bernard Shaw, The Genuine Islam, Volume 1, Number 81936. Sixth quotation. The extinction of race consciousness as between Muslims is one of the outstanding achievements of Islam. And in the contemporary world there is, as it happens, a common need for the propagation of this Islamic virtue. This is A.J. Tangley, Civilization on Trial, Civilization on Trial, New York, 1938, page 205. Seventh quotation. The rise of Islam is perhaps the most amazing event in human history. Springing from a land and a people like previously needed to be, Islam spread within a century over half the earth shattering great empires, overthrowing long-established religions, remolding the souls of races and building up a whole new world, the world of Islam. The closer we examine this development, the more extraordinary does it appear. The other great religions won their way slowly, by painful struggle, and finally triumphed with the aid of powerful monarchs converted to the new faith. Christianity had its Constantine, Buddhism its Ahsoka, and Zoroastrianism its Cyrus. Each lending to his chosen cult the mighty force of secular authority, not so Islam. Arising in a desert land sparsely inhabited by a nomad race, previously undistinguished in human annals, Islam solid forth to its great adventure, with the slenderest human backing and against the heaviest material odds. Yet Islam triumphed with seemingly miraculous ease, and a couple of generations for the fiery crescent drawn victorious from the Pyrenees to the Himalayas, and from the desert of Central Asia to the deserts of Central Africa. This is A.M.L. Stoddard, quoted in Islam, The Religion of All Prophets. It's published by Begum Barani Wakaf, Karachi, Pakistan, page 3056. The last quotation. Islam is a religion that is essentially rationalistic in the widest sense of this term, considered entomologically and historically. The definition of rationalism as a system that places religious beliefs on principles furnished by the reason applies to it exactly. It cannot be denied that many doctrines and systems of theology, and also many superstitions, from the worship of saints to the use of rosaries and amulets, have become grafted on the main trunk of Muslim creed. But in spite of the rich development, in every sense of the term, of the teachings of the Prophet, the Quran has invariably kept its place as the fundamental starting point, and the dogma of unity of God has always been proclaimed therein with a grandeur and majesty, an invariable purity and with a note of sure conviction, which is hard to find surpassed outside the pole of Islam. This fidelity to the fundamental dogma of the religion, the elemental simplicity of the formula in which it is enunciated, the proof that it gains from the fervent conviction of the missionaries who propagate it, 
are so many causes to explain the success of Mohammedan missionary efforts, a creed so precise, so stripped of all theological complexities, and consequently so accessible to the ordinary understanding might be expected to possess, and does indeed possess, a marvelous power of winning its way into the consciousness of men. This is Edward Montet, La Propaganda Korean SSS Adversaries Muslims, Paris, 1890 and it's quoted by T.W. Arnold in The Preaching of Islam, London, 1913, pages 413 to 414. Further readings on Islam. T.B. Irving, et al., The Quran, Basic Teachings. Hamuda Abdullahi, Islam in Focus. Muhammad Qutb, Islam, the Misunderstood Religion. Mulan Madudi, Towards Understanding Islam. Maurice Bukai, The Bible, The Quran, and Science. Suzanne Hanif, What Everyone Should Know About Islam and the Muslims. In the name of Almighty God, the Merciful, the Compassionate. Islam at a glance. First, Islam and Muslims. Arabic word Islam means peace, submission, and obedience. The religion of Islam is the complete acceptance of the teachings and guidance of God as revealed to his prophet Muhammad, and the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. A Muslim is one who believes in God and strives for total reorganization of his life according to his revealed guidance and the sayings of the prophet. He also works for building human society on the same basis. Muhammadanism is a misnomer for Islam and offends its very spirit. The word Allah is the proper name of God in Arabic. It is a unique term because it has no plural or feminine gender. Continuity of message. Islam is not a new religion. It is in essence the same message and guidance which Allah revealed to all prophets. Say, we believe in Allah and what has been revealed to us, and that which was revealed to Abraham and Ismail and Isaac and Jacob and the tribes, and that which was given to Moses and Jesus and to other prophets from their Lord. We make no distinction between any of them, and to him we submit. This is from the Holy Quran, the third chapter, verse 83. The message which was revealed to Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is Islam in its comprehensive, complete, and final form. The five pillars of Islam. There are five pillars of Islam. One, the declaration of faith to bear witness that there is none worthy of worship except Allah and that Muhammad is his messenger to all human beings till the day of judgment. The prophethood of Muhammad obliges the Muslims to follow his exemplary life as a model. Two, prayers. Daily prayers are offered five times a day as a duty towards Allah. They strengthen and enliven the belief in Allah and inspire man to a high morality. They purify the heart and prevent temptation toward wrongdoings and evils. 3. Fasting the month of Ramadan. The Muslims during the month of Ramadan not only abstain from food, drink, and sexual intercourse from dawn to sunset, but also from evil intentions and desires. It teaches love, sincerity, and devotion. It develops a sound social conscience, patience, unselfishness, and willpower. 4. Zakat. To pay annually, Two and a half percent of one's net saving on which a year has passed as a religious duty and purifying sum 
to be spent on poorer sections of the community. 5. The pilgrimage to Mecca. It is to be performed once in a lifetime, if one can afford it financially and physically. Besides these pillars, every action which is done with the awareness that it fulfills the will of Allah is also considered an act of worship. Islam enjoins faith in the oneness and sovereignty of Allah, which makes man aware of the meaningfulness of the universe and of his place in it. This belief frees him from all fears and superstitions by making him conscious of the presence of the Almighty Allah and of man's obligations towards him. This faith must be expressed and tested in action. Faith alone is not enough. Belief in one God requires that we look upon all humanity as one family under the universal omnipotence of God, the creator and nourisher of all. Islam rejects the idea of a chosen people, making faith in God and good action the only way to heaven. Thus a direct relationship is established with God without any intercessor. Man, the free agent. Man is the highest creation of God. He is equipped with the highest of potentialities. He is left relatively free in his will, action and choice. God has shown him the right path and the life of Prophet Muhammad provides a perfect example. Man's success and salvation lies in following both. Islam teaches the sanctity of the human personality and confers equal rights upon all without any distinction of race, sex or color. The law of God enunciated in the Quran and exemplified in the life of the Prophet is supreme in all cases. It applies equally to the highest and the lowest and the prince and the peasant, the ruler and the ruled. Quran and Hadith The Quran is the last revealed word of God and the basic source of Islamic teachings and laws. The Quran deals with the basis of creeds, moralities, history of humanity, worship, knowledge, wisdom, the God-man relationship and human relationship in all aspects. Comprehensive teachings on which can be built sound systems of social justice, economics, politics, legislation, jurisprudence, law and international relations are important contents of the Holy Quran. Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, himself was an unlettered man who could not read or write. Yet the Holy Quran was committed to memory and writing by his followers, under his supervision during his lifetime. The original and complete text of the Quran is available to everybody in Arabic, the language in which it was revealed. Translation of the meaning into many languages are widely used. Hadith, the teachings, sayings and actions of Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, meticulously reported and collected by his devoted companions, explain and elaborate the Quranic verses. Concept of Worship Islam does not teach or accept mere ritualism. It emphasizes intention and action. To worship God is to know him and love him, to act upon his law in every aspect of life, to enjoin goodness and forbid wrongdoing and oppression, to practice charity and justice, and to serve him by serving mankind. The Quran presents this concept in the following sublime manner. It is not righteousness that you turn your faces to the east or the west, but righteous is he who believes in God and the last day and the angels and the book and the prophets, and gives his wealth for love of him to kinsfolk and to orphans and the needy and the wayfarer and to those who ask, and to set slaves free, and observes proper worship and pays the sakah, and those who keep their treaty when they make one, and the patient in tribulation and adversity and time of stress. Such are those who are sincere. Such are the God-fearing. This is from the Holy Quran, the second chapter, verse 177. Islamic way of life. 
Islam provides definite guidelines for all peoples to follow in all walks of life. The guidance it gives is comprehensive and includes the social, economic, political, moral and spiritual aspects of life. The Quran reminds man of the purpose of his life on earth, of his duties and obligations towards himself, his kith and kin, his community, his fellow human beings and his creator. Man is given fundamental guidelines about a purposeful life and then he is left with a challenge of human existence before him so that he might put these high ideals into practice. In Islam, man's life is a wholesome, integrated unit and not a collection of fragmented, competitive parts. The scared and secular are not separate parts of man. They are united in the nature of being human. Historical Perspective Muhammad, may the blessings and peace of Allah be upon him, was born in the year 570 of the Common Era in the city of Mecca in Arabia. He came of a noble family. He received the first revelation at the age of 40. As soon as he started preaching Islam, he and his followers were persecuted and had to face severe hardships. He was therefore commanded by God to migrate to Medina, another city in Arabia. During a short span of 23 years, he completed his mission of prophethood and died at the age of 63. He led a perfect life and set an example for all human beings as his life was the embodiment of the Quranic teachings. Islam's Rational Appeal Islam in its clear and direct way of expressing truth has a tremendous amount of appeal for any seeker of knowledge. It is a solution for all the problems of life. It is a guide towards a better and complete life, glorifying in all its phases God, the Almighty Creator and the Merciful Nourisher. Muslim population at a glance, 1975 estimates, for Africa 224.2 million, Asia 575.3 million, Europe 20 million, North and South America and Australia 4 million, the total 823.5 million. There's been an increase on this and the total figure now is estimated at just over 1 billion. The number of countries with over 50% Muslim population is 58. Now in view of the growth in population during nine years after 1975 and worldwide trend of conversion to Islam, Muslim population is to be believed to have risen over 1 billion. Islam, the solution of modern problems. The Brotherhood of Man. A major problem which modern man faces is that of racism. The materially advanced nations can send man to the moon, but they cannot stop man from hating and fighting his fellow man. Islam over the last 1400 years has shown in practice how racism can be ended. Every year during Hajj, the Islamic miracle of real brotherhood of all races and nations can be seen in action. The family. The family which is the basic unit of civilization is disintegrating in all western countries. Islam's family system brings into a fine equilibrium the rights of man, wife, children and relatives. Islam nourishes human unselfishness, generosity and love in a well-organized family system. Unfragmented view of life. Human beings live according to their view of life. The tragedy of secular societies is that they fail to connect the different aspects of life. The secular and the religious, the scientific and the spiritual seem to be in conflict. Islam puts an end to this conflict and brings harmony to man's vision of life. The Third of Islam 
Are you still in doubt about the popular notion that Islam was spread by the sword? Examine the following facts and you will come to believe, inshallah. The first few who embraced the new religion at the hands of the Prophet were his wife Khadija, his servant Sayyid, and his 11-year-old cousin Ali. Among the ones who later joined his faith in Mecca were the honest merchant Abu Bakr, the Iron Man of Arabia, Omar the Great, the shy businessman Uthman, Prophet's brave uncle Hamza, and the family of a pagan slave, Bilal. They simply couldn't resist the magic sword of a humble and lonely prophet. The negligible minority of the believers in this new space were soon driven away from Mecca with their sword in the city of their migration, Medina. People not only welcomed the bearers, but the sword as well. It didn't cease to work even there, and its magnetic force continued to pull people towards it until the whole of Arabia joined the faith. Compared to the population of the rest of the world at that time, the Arabs constituted a tiny minority. A fraction of this minority decided to take the sword beyond the boundaries of the Arabian desert to the mighty empires of Rome and Persia. The shores of the Mediterranean, the coast of Malabar, and the faraway East Indies Islands. People after people went on to rendering to this sword and joining the faith. So sharp was the edge of the sword, it simply conquered the hearts. Bodies yielded automatically. It is the sword of truth, whose mere shine eliminates falsehood, just like light wipes away darkness. Has the sword gone blunt? No, far from it. It continues to pierce the hearts of countless men and women every day, in spite of the relentless efforts by persons who have vested interests who like darkness to prevail, so that they may rob people of their good things. Read below the impressions of some who were recently conquered by the same sword. They are from different countries, speak different languages, and have different backgrounds. Their present addresses are also given. Perhaps you may like to ask them how it feels to be struck by the sword of truth. 1. Leopold Weiss, now Muhammad Assad. Austrian statesman, journalist, and author. Former foreign correspondent of the Frankfurter Zeitung, author of Islam at the Crossroads and Road to Mecca, and translator of the Quran. He embraced Islam in 1926. He says, Islam appears to me like a perfect work of architecture. All its parts are harmoniously conceived to complement and support each other. Nothing is superfluous and nothing lacking, with the result of an absolute balance and solid composure. His present address is Darul Andalus, 3 Library Ramp, Gibraltar, Morocco. 2. Ahmed Holt, British civil contractor, traveled extensively in search of the divine truth, spent much time in research and comparative study of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, embraced Islam in 1975. He says, the sword of Islam is not the sword of steel. I know this by experience, because the sword of Islam struck deep into my own heart. It didn't bring death, but it brought a new life. It brought an awareness, and it brought an awakening as to who am I, and what am I, and for what I am here. His present address is 23 Wallen Garden, Perryvale, Middlesex, Postal Code UB68SZ, UK. 3. Bogdan Kapansky. Now Bogdan, unto Allah, Kapansky. 
originally Polish, now American. He has a PhD in history and politics. He had a very interesting journey to Islam and faced severe hardships. He was imprisoned twice by the Polish communist regime in 1968 and again in 1981 to 1982. He embraced Islam in 1974. He says, when I was 12 years old, I rejected illogical and contradictory faith of church. Two years later, in 1962, I was fascinated by the victorious struggle of the Algerian Muslim Mujahideen against French colonialism. It was the first arrow of Islam. In the high school and earliest days of my education in the university, I was a typical example of rebel generation of Reds. My way to the truth of Al-Quran was slow and unpaved. In 1974, I visited Turkey. I wrote my MA dissertation about Sultan and Caliph Suleiman Benoni's policy towards the Polish Kingdom. There, I was hit by the most beautiful voice of mankind, the Azan, the call to prayer. My hair stood up. Unknown powerful forces led me to an old masjid in Istanbul. There, old smiling Turkish bearded men taught me wuzu, ablution. I confessed the tears, the shahada, and I prayed my first salah, maghrib. I swept out the rubbish ideologies. The first time in my life, my mind was relaxed, and I felt pleasure in Allah's love in my heart. I was a Muslim. His present address, 3013 Harrell Drive, 203 Grand Prairie, Texas 75051, USA. Four, Bangat Akalam, Adiya, now Abdullah Adiya. An Indian, noted Tamil writer, writer and journalist. He worked as a news editor for 17 years. He worked with three former chief ministers of Tamil Nadu. He received an award, the Big Gem of Arts, from the TN government, that's the Tamil Nadu government, in 1982 and he embraced Islam in 1987. He says, In Islam, I found suitable replies to nagging queries arising in my mind with regard to the theory of creation, the status of women, creation of the universe, etc. The life history of the Holy Prophet attracted me very much and made easy for me to compare with other world leaders and their philosophies. His present address is one Ashok Avenue, Rangarajapuram, Chodambakham, Madras, India. Five, Herbert Chabon, now Aman Chabon. He's a German diplomat, missionary, and social worker, an intellectual who has been serving the German diplomatic mission in various parts of the world. He's presently working as the cultural attaché in the German embassy in Riyadh, and he embraced Islam in 1941. He says, I have lived under different systems of life, and have had the opportunity of studying various ideologies, but have come to the conclusion that none is as perfect as Islam. None of the systems has got a complete code of a noble life. Only Islam has it, and that is why good men embrace it. Islam is not theoretical, it is practical. It means complete submission to the will of God. His present address, Cultural Attaché, German Embassy, PO Box 8974, Riyadh 11492, Saudi Arabia. 6. Chat Stevens, now Yusuf Islam. British, formerly Christian, he was a world famous pop singer 
he embraced Islam in 1973. He says, It will be wrong to judge Islam in the light of the behavior of some bad Muslims who are always shown on the media. It is like judging a car as a bad one if the driver of the car is drunk and he bangs it into a wall. Islam guides all human beings in their daily lives, in its spiritual, mental, and physical dimensions. But we must find the sources of these instructions, the Quran and the example of the Prophet. Then we can see the ideal of Islam. His present address is Chairman, Muslim Maid, Three Furlong Road, London, N7, in England. 7. Margaret Marcus, now Miriam Jamila, American, formerly Jewish, essayist, and journalist. She is the author of many books, and she embraced Islam in 1962. She says, The authority of Islamic morals and laws proceeds from Almighty God. Pleasure and happiness in Islam are both the natural byproducts of emotional satisfaction in one's duties consciously performed, conscientiously performed for the pleasure of God to achieve salvation. In Islam, duties are always stressed above rights. Only in Islam was my quest for absolute values satisfied. Only in Islam did I at last find all that was true, good, beautiful, and which gives meaning and direction to human life and death. Present address is care of Mr. Muhammad Yusuf Khan, St. Naga, Lahore, Pakistan. 8. Wilfred Hoffman, now Marat Hoffman. He has a PhD in law from Harvard. He's German, social scientist, and diplomat. He's presently the German ambassador in Algiers. He embraced Islam in 1980. He says, For some time now, striving for more and more precision and poverty, I have tried to put on paper, in a systematic way, all philosophical truths which, in my view, can be ascertained beyond reasonable doubt. In the course of this effort, it dawned on me that the typical attitude of an agnostic is not an intelligent one. That man simply cannot escape the decision to believe. That the creativeness of what exists around us is obvious. That Islam undoubtedly finds itself in the greatest harmony with overall reality. Thus I realize, not without shock, that step by step, in spite of myself, and almost unconsciously, in feeling and thinking, I have grown into a Muslim. Only one last step remained to be taken, to formally my conversion. As of today, I am a Muslim. I have a right. His present address is the Embassy of the Federal Republic of Germany, BP 664, Algeria. 9. Cassius Clay, now Muhammad Ali Clay, American boxer who was three times the world heavyweight champion. He was formerly Christian and he embraced Islam in 1965. He says, I have had many nice moments in my life, but the feelings I had while standing on Mount Arafat on the day of Hajj, the Muslim's pilgrimage, was the most unique. I felt exalted by the indescribable spiritual atmosphere there as over a million and a half pilgrims invoked God to forgive them of their sins and bestow on them his choicest blessings. It was an exhilarating experience to see people belonging to different colors, races and nationalities. Kings, heads of states and ordinary men from very poor countries all clad in two simple white sheets praying to God without any sense of either pride or inferiority. Or inferiority. It was a practical manifestation 
of the concept of quality in Islam, of equality in Islam. Speaking to the Daily and Latina newspaper in Jeddah, the 15th of July, 1989. His present address is 1200E 49th Street, Chicago, Illinois, 60615. These were the impressions of a few persons who had themselves been struck by the sword of truth. As for the propaganda, that it was a sword of steel, i.e. the force which was instrumental in the universal expansion of Islam, we give below remarks of some prominent non-Muslims refuting this baseless claim. The first, M.K. Gandhi. I became more than ever convinced that it was not the sword that won a place for Islam in those days in the scheme of life. It was the rigid simplicity, the utter self-effacement of the Prophet, the scrupulous regard for his pledges, his intense devotion to his friends and followers, his interpretity, his fearlessness, his absolute trust in God and in his own mission. These, and not the sword, carried everything before them and surmounted every trouble. This was published in Young India in 1924. 2. Edward Gibbon The greatest success of Muhammad's life was effected by sheer moral force without the stroke of a sword. This is in the history of the Saracen Empire, London, 1870. 3. A.S. Tritton The picture of the Muslim soldier advancing with a sword in one hand and the Quran in the other is quite false. This was in Islam, London, 1951. Page 21. 4. De Lacey O'Leary. History makes it clear, however, that the legend of fanatical Muslims sweeping through the world and forcing Islam at the point of sword upon conquered races is one of the most fantastically observed truths, is one of the most fantastically observed myths that historians have ever repeated. This is in Islam at the Crossroads, London, 1923. Page 8. 5. K.S. Ramakrishna Rao My problem to write this monograph is easier because we are not generally fed now on that destroyed, distorted kind of history and much time needs to be spent on pointing out our misrepresentations of Islam. The theory of Islam and the sword, for instance, is not heard now in any quarter worth the name. The principle of Islam that there is no compulsion in religion is well known. This is in his book, Muhammad, the Prophet of Islam, published in Riyadh in 1989, page 4. 6. James A. Michener. No other religion in history spreads so rapidly as Islam. The West has widely believed that this surge of religion was made possible by the source, but no modern scholar accepts that idea, and the Quran is explicit in support of the freedom of conscience. This is in Islam, the Misunderstood Realism. Islam, the Misunderstood Religion. Reader's Digest, American Edition, May 1955. 7. Lawrence E. Brown. Incidentally, these well-established facts dispose of the idea so widely fostered in Christian writings that the Muslims, wherever they went, forced people to accept Islam at the point of the sword. This was published in the Prospects of Islam, London, 1944. If you have an objective mind, or an open mind, why not read some of these suggested readings on Islam? There's a series on Islam published by the World Association of Muslim Youth.
towards understanding Islam by my duty. Islam, our choice, by the World Association of Muslim Youth. The Quran, basic teachings, by T.B. Irving and Shay Ahmed. The Holy Quran, text, translation and commentaries, by Yusuf Ali. Basic principles of understanding the Quran by Madudi. The life of Prophet Muhammad by A.H. Siddiqui, or another version by Martin Ling. Islam in focus by Abdul Antlati. The Islamic way of life by Madudi. The Bible, the Quran and science by Maurice Bukai. And selections from Hadith by A.H. Siddiqui. The concept of worship in Islam. The concept of worship in Islam is misunderstood by many people, including some Muslims. Worship is commonly taken to mean performing ritualistic acts such as prayers, fasting, charity, etc. This limited understanding of worship is only one part of the meaning of worship in Islam. That is why the traditional definition of worship in Islam is a comprehensive definition that includes almost everything in any individual's activities definition goes something like this. Worship is an all-inclusive term for all that God loves of external and internal sayings and actions of a person. In other words, worship is everything one says or does for the pleasure of Allah. This of course includes rituals as well as beliefs, social activities and personal contributions to the welfare of one's fellow human beings. Islam looks at the individual as a whole. He is required to submit himself completely to Allah. As the Quran instructs the Prophet Muhammad to do, Say, O Muhammad, my prayer, my sacrifice, my life, and my death belong to Allah. He has no partner, and I am ordered to be among those who submit, i.e. Muslims. The natural result of this submission is that all one's activities should conform to the instructions of the one to whom the person is submitting. Islam being a way of life, requires that its followers model their life according to its teachings in every aspect, religious or otherwise. This might sound strange to some people who think of religion as a personal relation between the individual and God, having no impact on one's activities outside rituals. As a matter of fact, Islam does not think much of mere rituals when they're performed mechanically and have no influence on one's inner life. The Quran addresses the believers and their neighbors from among the people of the book who are arguing them about the change of the direction of the Qibla in the following verse. It is not righteousness that you turn your faces toward the east or the west, but righteous is he who believes in Allah and the last day and the angels and the book and the prophets and gives his beloved money to the relatives and the orphans and the needy and for the ransoming of the captives and who observes prayer and pays the poor Jew and those who fulfill their promises when they have made one and the patient in poverty and affliction and the steadfast in time of war. It is those who have proved truthful and it is those who are the God-fearing. This is from the Holy Quran, second chapter, verse 177. The deeds in this verse are the deeds of righteousness and they are only a part of worship. The Prophet told us about faith, which is the basis of worship, that it is made up of sixty and some branches the highest of which is the belief in the oneness of Allah. That is, there is no God but Allah, and the lowest in the scale of worship is removing obstacles and dirt from people's way. Decent work is considered in Islam a type of worship. The Prophet said, 
whoever finds himself at a nightfall tired of his work, God will forgive his sins. Seeking knowledge is one of the highest types of worship. The Prophet told his companions that seeking knowledge is a religious duty on every Muslim. And another saying he said, seeking knowledge for one hour is better than praying for seventy years. Social courtesy and cooperation are part of worship when done for the sake of Allah, as the Prophet told us. Receiving your friend with a smile is a type of charity. Helping a person to load his animal is a charity. And putting some water in your neighbor's bucket is a charity. It is worth noting that even performing one's duties is considered a sort of worship. The Prophet told us that whatever one spends for his family is a type of charity. He will be rewarded for it if he acquires it through legal means. Kindness to the members of one's family is an act of worship, as when one puts a piece of food in his spouse's mouth, as the Prophet informed us. Not only this, but even the acts we enjoy doing very much, when they are performed according to the instructions of the Prophet, they are considered as acts of worship. The Prophet told his companions that they would be rewarded even for having sexual intercourse with their wives. The companions were astonished and asked, how are we going to be rewarded for doing something we enjoy very much? The Prophet asked them, suppose you satisfy your desires illegally, don't you think that you will be punished for that? They replied, yes. So he said, by satisfying it legally with your wives, you are rewarded for it. This means they are acts of worship. Thus Islam does not consider sex a dirty thing that one should avoid. It is dirty and a sin only when it is satisfied outside marital life. It is clear from the previous discussion that the concept of worship in Islam is a comprehensive concept that includes all the positive activities of the individual. This of course is an agreement with the all-inclusive nature of Islam as a way of life. It regulates the human life on all levels the individual, the social, the economic, the political, and the spiritual. That is why Islam provides guidance to the smallest details of one's life on all these levels. Those following these details is following Islamic instructions in that specific area. It is a very encouraging element when one realizes that all his activities are considered by God as acts of worship. This should lead the individual to seek Allah's pleasure in his actions and always try to do them in the best possible manner whether he is watched by his superiors or he is alone. There is always the permanent supervisor who knows everything, namely Allah. The first side of the tape is over. Please turn to the second. Discussing the non-ritual worship in Islam first does not mean under-evaluating the importance of the ritual ones. Actually, ritual worships, if performed in true spirit, elevate man morally and spiritually and enable him to carry on his activities in all walks of life according to the guidance of God. Among ritual worships, Salah, the ritual prayer, occupies the key position for two reasons. Firstly, it is a distinctive mark of a believer. Secondly, it prevents an individual from all sorts of abominations and vices by providing him chances of direct communication with his Creator five times a day wherein he renews his covenant with God and seeks his guidance again and again. You alone we worship, and to you alone we turn for help. Guide us to the straight path. This is the first chapter in the Holy Quran, verses 4 and 5. Actually, Salah is the first practical manifestation of faith, and also the foremost of the basic conditions for the success of the believers. 
Successful indeed are the believers who are humble in their prayers. This is chapter 23, the first two verses. The same fact has been emphasized by the Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in a different way. He says, those who offer their salah with great care and punctuality will find it a light, a proof of their faith, and cause of their salvation on the day of judgment. After salah, salah, the charity, is an important pillar in Islam. In the Quran, Salah and Zakat mostly have been mentioned together. Like Salah, Zakat is a manifestation of faith that affirms that God is the sole owner of everything in the universe, and what men hold is a trust in their hand over which God made them trustees to discharge it as he has laid down. Believe in Allah and his messenger and spend over that which he made you trustees. This is in the Holy Quran, chapter 57, verse 7. In this respect, zakah is an act of devotion, which, like prayer, brings the believer nearer to his Lord. Apart from this, zakah is a means of redistribution of wealth, in a way that reduces differences between class, classes and groups. It makes a fair contribution to social stability, by purging the soul of the rich from selfishness and the soul of the poor from envy and resentment against society. It stops the channels leading to class hatred and makes it possible for the springs of brotherhood and solidarity to gush forth. Such stability is not only based on the personal feelings of the rich, it stands on a firmly established right which, if the rich denied it, would be exacted by force if necessary. Siyam, fasting during the daytime, of the month of Ramadan is another pillar of Islam. The main function of fasting is to make the Muslim pure from within, as other aspects of Sharia make him pure from without. By such purity he responds to what is true and good and shuns what is false and evil. That is what we can perceive in the Quranic verse. O you who believe, fasting is prescribed for you as it was prescribed for those before you, that you may gain piety. It's from the Holy Quran. Chapter 2, verse 183. In an authentic tradition, the Prophet reported Allah as saying, He suspends eating, drinking, and gratification of his sexual passion for my sake. Thus his reward is going to be according to God's great bounty. Fasting then awakens the conscience of the individual and gives it scope for exercise in a joint experience for all society at the same time, thus adding further strength to each individual. Moreover, fasting offers a compulsory rest to the overworked human machine for the duration of one full month. Similarly, fasting reminds an individual of those who are deprived of life necessities throughout the year or throughout life. It makes him realize the sufferings of others, the less fortunate brothers in Islam, and thus promotes in him a sense of sympathy and kindness towards them. Lastly, we come to Al-Hajj, the pilgrimage to the house of Allah in Mecca. It is very important Lastly, we come to Al-Hajj, the pilgrimage to the house of God in Mecca. This very important pillar of Islam manifests a unique unity, dispelling all kinds of differences. Muslims from all corners of the world, wearing the same dress, respond to the call of Hajj in one voice and language. 
Labaik, Allahumma Labaik. Here I am at your service, O Lord. In Hajj, there is an exercise of strict self-discipline and control, where not only sacred things are revered, but even the life of plants and birds is made in them, so that everything lives in safety. And he that venerates the sacred things of God, it shall be better for him with his Lord. This is from the Holy Quran, chapter 22, verse 30. And he that venerates the waymarks of God, it surely is from devotion of the heart. Again, from the Holy Quran, chapter 22, verse 32. The pilgrimage gives an opportunity to all Muslims from all groups, classes, organizations, and governments from all over the Muslim world to meet annually in a great congress. The time and venue of this congress has been set by their one God. Invitation to attend is open to every Muslim. No one has the power to bar anyone. Every Muslim who attends is guaranteed full safety and freedom as long as he himself does not violate his safety. Thus worship in Islam, whether ritual or non-ritual, trains the individual in such a way that he loves his creator most and thereby gains an unyielding will and spirit to wipe out all evil and oppression from the human society and make the word of God dominant in the world. The concept of God in Islam. It is a known fact that every language has one or more terms that are used in reference to God and sometimes to lesser deities. This is not the case with Allah. Allah is the personal name of the one true God. Nothing else can be called Allah. The term has no plural or gender. This shows its uniqueness when compared with the word God, which can be made plural, gods, or feminine, goddess. It is interesting to notice that Allah is the personal name of God in Aramaic, the language of Jesus, and a sister language of Arabic. The one true God is a reflection of the unique concept that Islam associates with God. To a Muslim, Allah is the almighty creator and sustainer of the universe, who is similar to nothing, and nothing is comparable to him. The Prophet Muhammad was asked by his contemporaries about Allah. The answer came directly from God himself in the form of a short chapter of the Qur'an, which is considered the essence of the unity or the motto of monotheism. This is chapter 112, which reads, In the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate. Say, O Muhammad, He is God, the one God, the everlasting refuge, who has not begotten, nor has been begotten, and equal to Him is not anyone. Some non-Muslims allege that God in Islam is a stern and cruel God who demands to be obeyed fully. He is not loving and kind. Nothing can be farther from the truth than this allegation. It is enough to know that, with the exception of one, each of the 114 chapters of the Quran begins with the verse, In the name of God, the merciful and compassionate. In one of the sayings of Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we are told that God is more loving and kinder than a mother to her dear children. But God is also just. Hence evildoers and sinners must have their share of punishment and the virtuous his bounties and favors. Actually God's attribute of mercy has full manifestation in his attribute of justice. People suffering throughout their life for his sake and people oppressing and exploiting other people all their life should not receive similar treatment from their Lord. Expecting similar treatment for them 
will amount to negating the very belief in the accountability of man in the hereafter and thereby negating all the incentives for a moral and virtuous life in this world. The following Quranic verses are very clear and straightforward in this respect. Verily for the righteous are gardens of delight in the presence of their Lord. Shall we then treat the people of faith like the people of sin? What is the matter with you? How judge you? This is chapter 68, verses 34 to 36 of the Holy Quran. Islam rejects characterizing God in any human form or depicting him as favoring certain individuals or nations on the basis of wealth, power, or race. He created the human beings as equals. They may distinguish themselves and get his favor through virtue and piety only. The concept that God rested on the seventh day of creation, that God wrestled with one of his prophets, that God is an envious plotter against mankind, or that God is incarnate in any human being are considered blasphemy from the Islamic point of view. The unique usage of Allah as a personal name of God is a reflection of Islam's emphasis on the purity of the belief in God, which is the essence of the message of all God's messengers. Because of this, Islam considers associating any deity or personality with God as a deadly sin, which God will never forgive, despite the fact he may forgive all other sins. The Creator must be of a different nature from the things created, because if he is of the same nature as they are, he will be temporal and will therefore need a maker. It follows that nothing is like him. If the maker is not temporal, then he must be eternal. But if he is eternal, he cannot be caused. And if nothing caused him to come into existence, nothing outside him causes him to continue to exist, which means that he must be self-sufficient. And if he does not depend on anything for the continuance of his own existence, then this existence can have no end. The Creator is therefore eternal and everlasting. He is the first and the last. He is self-sufficient or self-subsistent or, to use a Quranic term, Al-Qayyim. The Creator does not create only in the sense of bringing things into being. He also preserves them and takes them out of existence and is the ultimate cause of whatever happens to them. God is the creator of everything. He is the guardian over everything. And to him belong the keys of the heaven and the earth. No creature is there crawling on the earth, but its provision rests on God. He knows its lodging place and its repository. Attributes of God If the creator is eternal and everlasting, then his attributes must also be eternal and everlasting. He should not lose any of his attributes, nor acquire new ones. If this is so, then his attributes are absolute. Can there be more than one creator with such absolute attributes? Can there be, for example, two absolutely powerful creators? A moment's thought shows that this is not feasible. The Quran summarizes this argument in the following verses. God has not taken to himself any son, nor is there any God with him. For then each God would have taken off that which, which he created, and some of them would have risen up over others. And why were there gods in earth and heaven other than God? 
they, heaven and earth, would surely go to ruin. The oneness of God. The Quran reminds us of the falsity of all alleged gods. To the worshippers of man-made objects, it asks, Do you worship what you have carved yourself? Or have you taken unto you others besides him to be your protectors, even such as have no power to protect themselves? To the worshippers of heavenly bodies, it cites the story of Abraham. One night spread over him, he saw a star and said, This is my Lord. But when he said, when it said, he said, I love not the setters. When he saw the moon rising, he said, This is my Lord. But when it set, he said, If my Lord does not guide me, I shall surely be of the people gone astray. When he saw the sun rising, he said, This is my Lord, this is greater. But when it set, he said, O my people, surely I quit that you associate, I have turned my face to him who originated the heavens and the earth. A man of pure faith, I am not of the idolaters. The attitude of the believers. In order to be a Muslim, that is, to surrender oneself to God, it is necessary to believe in the oneness of God, in the sense of his being the only creator, preserver, nourisher, etc. But this belief, later on called Tahid al-Rububiyya, is not enough. Many of the idolaters knew and believed that only the Supreme God could do all this. But that was not enough to make them Muslims. To Tahid al-Rububiyya, one must add Tahid al-Uluhiyya, that is, one acknowledges the fact that it is God alone who deserves to be worshipped, and thus abstains from worshipping any other thing or being. Having achieved this knowledge of the one true God, man should constantly have faith in him, and should allow nothing to induce him to deny truth. When faith enters a person's heart, it causes certain mental states which result in certain actions. Taken together, these mental states and actions are the proof for true faith. The Prophet said, Faith is that which resides firmly in the heart and which is proved by deeds. Foremost among those mental states is the feeling of gratitude towards God, which could be said to be the essence of ibadah, that is worship. The feeling of gratitude is so important that a non-believer is called kafir, which means one who denies a truth, and it also means one who is ungrateful. A believer loves and is grateful to God for the bounties he bestowed upon him. But being aware of the fact that his good deeds, whether mental or physical, are far from being commensurate with divine favors, he is always anxious lest God should punish him, here or in the hereafter. He therefore fears him, surrenders himself to him, and serves him with great humility. One cannot be in such a mental state without being almost all the time mindful of God. Remembering God is thus the life force of faith, without which it fades and withers away. The Quran tries to remote this feeling of gratitude by repeating the attributes of God very frequently. We find most of these attributes mentioned together in the following verses of the Quran. He is God. There is no God but He. He is the knower of the unseen and the visible. He is the all-merciful, the all-compassionate. He is God. There is no God but He. He is the King, the All-Holy, the All-Peace, 
the guardian of faith, the all-preserver, the almighty, the all-compeller, the all-sublime. Glory be to God, above that they associate. He is God, the creator, the maker, the shaper. To him belong the names most beautiful. All that is in the heavens and the earth magnifies him. He is the almighty, the all-wise. This is chapter 59, verses 22 to 24 of the Holy Quran. Again, there is no God but he, the living, the everlasting. Slumber seizes him not, neither sleep. To him belongs all that is in the heavens and the earth. Who is there that shall intercede with him, save by his leave? He knows what lies before them, and what is after them. And they comprehend not anything of his knowledge, save such as he wills. His throne comprises the heavens and earth. The preserving of them oppresses him not. He is the All-High, the All-Glorious. This is chapter 2, verse 255, the Holy Quran. Here again. People of the book, go not beyond the bounds in your religion, and say not as to God, but the truth. The Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was only the messenger of God, and his word that he committed to Mary, and a spirit from him. So believe in God and his messengers, and say not three. Refrain, better is it for you. God is only one God. Glory be to him that he should have a son. This is in the Holy Quran, chapter 4, verse 171. The concept of prophethood in Islam. Prophethood is not unknown to heavenly revealed religions, such as Judaism and Christianity. In Islam, however, it has a special status and significance. According to Islam, Allah created man for a noble purpose, to worship him and lead a virtuous life based on his teachings and guidance. How man would know his role and the purpose of his existence unless he received clear and practical instructions of what Allah wants him to do? Here comes the need for prophethood. Thus Allah had chosen from every nation a prophet or more to convey his message to the people. One might ask, how were the prophets chosen and who were entitled to this great honor? Prophethood is a blessing from Allah and a favor that he may bestow on whom he wills. However, from surveying the various messengers throughout history, three features of a prophet may be recognized. One, he is the best in his community, morally and intellectually. This is necessary because the prophet's life serves as a model for his followers. His personality should attract people to accept his message rather than drive them away by his imperfect character. After receiving the message, he is infallible. That is, he would not commit any sin. He might do some minor mistakes, which are usually corrected by revelation. Two, he is supported by miracles to prove that he is not an imposter. Those miracles are granted by the power and permission of God and are usually in the field in which his people excel and are recognized as superiors. We might illustrate this by quoting the major miracles of the three prophets of the major world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The contemporaries of Moses were excellent in magic, so his major miracle was to defeat the best magicians of Egypt of his days. The contemporaries of Jesus were recognized as skillful physicians, Therefore, his miracles were to raise the dead and cure the incurable diseases. For the Arabs, the contemporaries of the Prophet Muhammad, and the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, 
were known for their eloquence and magnificent poetry. So Prophet Muhammad made a miracle was the Quran, the equivalent of which the whole legion of the Arab poets and orators could not produce, despite the repeated challenge from the Quran itself. Again, the miracle of Muhammad, and the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has something special about it. All previous miracles were limited by time and place. That is, they were shown to specific people at a specific time. Not so the miracle of Muhammad, the Quran. It is a universal and everlasting miracle. Previous generations witnessed it, and future generations will witness its miraculous nature in terms of its style, content, and spiritual uplifting. These can still be tested, and will thereby prove the divine origin of the Quran. 3. Every prophet states clearly that what he receives is not of his own, but from God, for the well-being of mankind. He also confirms what was revealed before him, and what may be revealed after him. A prophet does this to show that he is simply conveying the message which is entrusted to him by the one true God of all people in all ages. So the message is one in essence and for the same purpose. Therefore it should not deviate from what was revealed before him or what might come after him. Prophets are necessary for conveying God's instructions and guidance to mankind. We have no way of knowing why we were created. What will happen to us after death? Is there any life after death? Are we accountable for our actions? In other words, is there any reward or punishment for our deeds in this life? These and so many other questions about God, the angels, paradise, hell, etc. cannot be answered without direct revelation from the Creator and Noah of the Unseen. Those answers must be authentic and must be brought by individuals whom we trust and respect. That is why messengers are the select of their societies in terms of moral conduct and intellectual abilities. Hence the slanderous biblical stories about some of the great prophets are not accepted by Muslims. As for example, when Lot is reported to have committed fornication while drunk with his daughters, or that David sent one of his leaders to death to marry his wife. Prophets to Muslims are greater than what these stories indicate. These stories cannot be true from the Islamic point of view. The prophets are also miraculously supported by God and instructed by him to affirm the continuity of the message. The content of the prophet's message to mankind can be summarized as follows. A. There's a clear concept about God, his attributes, his creation, what should and should not be ascribed to him. B. There is a clear idea about the unseen world, the angels, the spirits, paradise, and hell. C. Why has God created it? Created us. What does he want from us? And what the reward or punishment for obeying or disobeying him is? D. How to run our societies according to his will. That is, clear instructions and laws that, when applied correctly and honestly, will result in a happy and ideal society. It is clear from the above that there is no substitute for prophets. Even nowadays, with the advancement of science, the only authentic source of information about the supernatural world is revelation. Guidance cannot be obtained neither from science nor from mystic experience. The first is too materialistic and too limited. The second is too subjective and frequently too misleading. No one might ask, how many prophets has God sent to humanity? We do not know for sure. Some Muslim scholars have suggested 240,000 prophets were sent. 
we are only sure of what is clearly mentioned in the Quran. That is, God has sent a messenger or more to every nation. That is because it is one of God's principles that he will never call a people to account unless he has made clear to them what to do and what not to do. The Quran mentions the names of 25 prophets and indicates that there have been others who were not mentioned to the Prophet Muhammad. These 25 include Noah, the man of the ark, Abraham, Moses, Jesus and Muhammad. These five are the greatest among God's messengers. They are called the resolute prophets. An outstanding aspect of the Islamic belief in prophethood is that Muslims believe in and respect all the messengers of God with no exceptions. Since all the prophets come from the same God for the same purpose to leave man God, mankind to the one true God, belief in them all is essential and logical. Accepting some and rejecting others has to be based on misconceptions of the prophet's role or on racial bias. The Muslims are the only people in the world who consider the belief in all the prophets of God an article of faith. Thus the Jews reject Jesus and Muhammad, peace be upon them. The Christians reject Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And in reality reject Moses because they do not abide by his laws. The Muslims accept them all as messengers of God who brought guidance to mankind. However, the revelation which those prophets brought from God had been tampered with in one way or the other. The belief in all the messengers of God is enjoined on the Muslims by the Quran. Say, O Muslims, we believe in Allah and that which is revealed to us and that which was revealed to Abraham and Ismail and Isaac and Jacob and their children and that which Moses and Jesus received and that which the prophets received from their Lord. We make no distinction between any of them and unto him we have surrendered. This is chapter 2, verse 136 of the Holy Quran. The Quran continues in the following verses to instruct the Muslims that this is the true and impartial belief. If other nations believe in the same, they are following the right track. If they do not, they must be following their own whims and biases, and God will take care of them. Thus we read, and if they believe in what you believe, then are they rightly guided. But if they turn away, then they are in disunity and Allah will suffice you against them. He is the hearer, the knower. This is God's religion, and who is better than God in religion? This is chapter 2, verses 137 and 138 of the Holy Quran. There are at least two important points related to prophethood that need to be clarified. These points concern the roles of Jesus and Muhammad as prophets who are usually misunderstood. The Quranic account of Jesus emphatically rejects the concept of his divinity and divine sonship and presents him as one of the great prophets of God. The Quran makes it clear that the birth of Jesus without a father does not make him son of God and mentions in this respect Adam who was created by God without a father and mother. Truly the likeness of Jesus in God's sight is as Adam's likeness. He created him of dust, then said he unto him, Be, and he was. This is chapter 3, verse 59 of the Holy Quran. Like other prophets, Jesus also performed miracles. For example, he raised the dead and cured the blind and the lepers. But while showing these miracles, he always made it clear that it was all from God. Actually, the misconceptions about the personality and mission of Jesus found a way among his followers because the divine message that he preached was not recorded during his presence in the world. 
Rather, it was recorded after a lapse of almost a hundred years. According to the Quran, he was sent to the children of Israel. He confirmed the validity of the Torah, which was revealed to Moses, and he also brought the glad tidings of a final messenger after him. And when Jesus, son of Mary, said, Children of Israel, I am indeed the messenger to you, conforming the Torah that is before me, and giving good tidings of a messenger who shall come after me, whose name shall be the praised one. 61.6 The underlying portion of the translation of Ahmad would be, whose name shall be the praised one. And this is one of the names of Prophet Muhammad. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. However, the majority of the Jews rejected his ministry. They plotted against his life and in their opinion crucified him. But the Quran refutes this opinion and says that they neither killed him nor crucified him. Rather, he was raised up to God. There is a verse in the Quran which implies that Jesus will come back and all the Christians and Jews will believe in him before he dies. This is also supported by authentic sayings of the Prophet Muhammad and the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The last prophet of God, Muhammad, May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was born in Arabia in the 6th century of the Common Era, up to the age of 40. People of Mecca knew him only as a man of excellent character and cultured manners, and called him Alamin in Arabic, meaning the trustworthy. He also did not, did not know that he was sent to be made a prophet and receiver of revelation from God. He called the idolaters of Mecca to worship the only one God and accept him as his prophet. The revelation that he received was preferred in his lifetime, in the memory of his companions, and was also recorded on pieces of palm leaves, on leather, etc. Thus the Quran that is found today is the same that was revealed to him. Not a syllable of it has been altered, as God himself has guaranteed its preservation. This Quran claims to be the book of guidance for the whole of humanity for all time, and mentions Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, as the last prophet of God. What they say about Muhammad. During the centuries of the Crusades, all sorts of slanders were invented against the prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. But with the birth of the modern age, marked with religious tolerance and freedom of thought, there has been a great change in the approach of Western authors in their delineation of his life and character. The views of some Muslim scholars regarding Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, given at the end of this talk, justify this opinion. But the West has still to go a step forward to discover the greatest reality about Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and that is his being the true and the last prophet of God for the whole of humanity. In spite of all its objectivity and enlightenment, there has been no sincere and objective attempt by the West to understand the prophethood of Muhammad, and the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. It is so strange that very glowing tributes are paid to him for his integrity and achievement, but his claim of being the prophet of God has been rejected, explicitly or implicitly. It is here that the searching of the heart is required, and a review of the so-called objectivity is needed. The following glaring facts about the life of Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, have been furnished, furnished to facilitate an unbiased, logical and objective decision regarding his prophethood. Up until the age of 40, Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, 
was not known as a statesman, a preacher, or an orator. He was never seen discussing the principles of metaphysics, ethics, law, politics, economics, or sociology. No doubt he possessed an excellent character, charming manners, and was highly cultured. Yet there was nothing so deeply striking and so radically extraordinary in him that would make men expect something great and revolutionary from him in the future. But when he came out of the cave, Hira, with a new message, he was completely transformed. Is it possible for such a person of the above qualities to turn all of a sudden into an impostor and claim to be the Prophet of Allah and invite all the rage of his people? One might ask, for what reason did he suffer all these hardships? His people offered to him, his people offered to accept him as their king and to lay all the riches of the land at his feet if only he would leave the preaching of his religion. But he chose to refuse their tempting offers and to go on preaching his religion single-handedly in the face of all kinds of insults, social, social boycotts, and even physical assault by his own people. Was it not only God's support and his firm will to disseminate the message of Allah and his deep-rooted belief that ultimately Islam would emerge as the only way of life for humanity, that he stood like a mountain in the face of all opposition and conspiracies to eliminate him? Furthermore, had he come with a design of rivalry with the Christians and the Jews, why should he have made belief in Jesus Christ and Moses and other prophets of God, may the peace of Allah be upon all of them, a basic requirement of faith without which no one could be a Muslim? Is it not an incontrovertible proof of his prophethood that in spite of being unlettered and having led a very normal and quiet life for 40 years, when he began preaching his message, all of Arabia stood in awe and wonder and was bewitched by his wonderful eloquence and oratory. It was so matchless that the whole legion of Arab poets, preachers and orators, the highest caliber, failed to bring forth its equivalent. And above all, how could he then pronounce truths of a scientific nature contained in the Quran that no other human being could possibly have developed at that time? Last but not least, why did he lead a hard life, even after gaining power and authority? Just ponder over the words he uttered while dying. We, the community of the prophets, are not inherited. Whatever we leave is for charity. For the matter of fact, Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is the last link of the chain of prophets sent in different lands and times since the very beginning of the human life on this planet. If greatness of purpose, smallness of means, and astounding results are the three criteria of human genius, who could dare to compare any great man in modern history with Muhammad? The most famous men created arms, laws, and empires only. They founded, if anything at all, no more than material powers, which often crumbled away before their eyes. This man moved not only armies, legislations, empires, peoples, and dynasties, but millions of men in one-third of the then-inhabited world. And more than that, he moved the altars, the gods, the religions, the ideas, the beliefs, and souls. His forbearance and victory his ambition, which was entirely devoted to one idea and in no manner striving for an empire, his endless prayers, his mystic conversations with God, his death and his triumph after death, all these attest not to an imposture, but to a firm conviction which gave him the power to restore a dogma. This dogma was twofold, the unity of God and the immateriality of God, the former telling what God is, the latter telling what God is not, the one overthrowing false gods with the sword, the other starting an idea with the words. 
philosopher, orator, apostle, legislator, warrior, conqueror of ideas, restorer of rational dogmas, of a cult without images, a founder of twenty terrestrial empires, and of one spiritual empire, that is Muhammad. As regards all standards by which human greatness may be measured, we may well ask, is there any man greater than he? This is by Lamartine, History de la Turquie, Paris 1854, Volume 2, pages 276-77. to 77. It is not the propagation, but the permanency of, of his religion that deserves our wonder. The same pure and perfect impression which he engraved at Mecca and Medina is preserved. After the revolutions of 12 centuries by the Indian, the African, and the Turkish proselytes of the Quran, the Mohammedans have uniformly withstood the temptation of reducing the object of their faith and devotion to a level with the senses and imagination of man. I believe in one God, and Muhammad, the apostle of God, is the simple and invariable profession of Islam. The intellectual image of the deity has never been degraded by any visible idol. The honors of the Prophet have never transgressed the measure of human virtue, and his living precepts have restrained the gratitude of his disciples within the bounds of reason and religion. This is by Edward Gibbon and Simon Ockley in the History of the Saracen Empire, published in London in 1870, page 54. He was Caesar and Pope in one, but he was Pope without Pope's pretensions, Caesar without the legions of Caesar, without a standing army, without a bodyguard, without a palace, without a fixed revenue. If ever any man had the right to say that he ruled by the right divine, it was Muhammad. For he had all the power without its instruments and without its supports. This is Bosworth Smith in Muhammad and Muhammadanism. Published in London, 1874, page 92. It is impossible for anyone who studies the life and character of the great prophet of Arabia, who knows how he taught and how he lived, to feel anything but reverence for that mighty prophet, one of the great messengers of the Supreme. And although in what I put to you I shall say many things which may be familiar to, familiar to many, yet I myself feel, whenever I reread them, a new way of admiration, a new sense of reverence for that mighty Arabian teacher. This was written by Ani Basant in The Life and Teachings of Muhammad, published in Madras, 1932, page 4. His readiness to undergo persecutions for his beliefs, the high moral character of the men who believed in him and looked up to him as their leader, and the greatness of his ultimate achievement, all argue his fundamental integrity. To suppose Muhammad an impostor raises more problems than it solves. Moreover, none of the great figures of history is so poorly appreciated in the West as Muhammad. This is written by W. Montgomery Watt in Muhammad at Mecca, published in Oxford, 1953, page 52. Muhammad, the inspired man who founded Islam, was born about AD 570 into an Arabian tribe that worshipped idols. Orphaned at birth, he was always particularly solicitous of the poor and needy, the widow and the orphan, the slave and the downtrodden. At 20, he was already a successful businessman and soon became director of camel caravans for a wealthy widow. When he reached 25, his employer, recognizing his merit, proposed marriage, even though she was 15 years older. He married her, and as long as she lived, remained a devoted husband. Like almost every major prophet before him, 
Muhammad fought shy of serving as the transmitter of God's word, sensing his own inadequacy. But the angel commanded, read. So far as we know, Muhammad was unable to read or write. But he began to dictate those inspired words, which would soon revolutionize a large segment of the earth. There is one God. In all things, Muhammad was profoundly practical. When his beloved son Ibrahim died, an eclipse occurred, and rumors of God's personal condolence quickly arose, whereupon Muhammad is said to have announced, an eclipse is a phenomenon of nature. It is foolish to attribute such things to the death or birth of a human being. At Muhammad's own death, an attempt was made to deify him, but the man who was to become his administrative successor killed the hysteria with one of the noblest speeches in religious history. If there are any among you who worship Muhammad, he is dead. But if it is God you worshipped, he lives forever. This was written by James A. Michener in Islam, The Misunderstood Religion. Published in the Reader's Digest, American Edition, for May 1955, pages 68 to 70. My choice of Muhammad to lead the list of the world's most influential persons may surprise some readers and may be questioned by others. But he was the only man in history who was supremely successful on both the religious and secular level. This was written by Michael H. Hart, The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history. It was published in New York by the Hart Publishing Company, Incorporated, in 1978, page 33. what they say about the Quran. Humanity has received the divine guidance only through two channels. Firstly, the word of Allah. Secondly, the prophets who were chosen by Allah to communicate his will to human beings. These two things have always been going together and attempts to know the word of Allah by neglecting either of these two have always been misleading. The Hindus neglected their prophets and paid all attention to their books that proved only word puzzles which they ultimately lost. Similarly, the Christians, in total disregard to the Book of Allah, attached all importance to Christ, and thus not only elevated him to divinity, but also lost the very essence of Tawheed, monotheism, belief in one God, contained in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the main scriptures revealed before the Quran, that is, the Old Testament and the Gospel, came into book form long after the days of the Prophets, and that too in translation. This was because the followers of Moses and Jesus made no considerable efforts to preserve these revelations during the life of their prophets. Rather, they were written down long after their death. Thus what we know have been in the form of the Bible, the Old as well as the New Testaments, is a translation of individuals' accounts of the original revelations which contain additions and deletions made by the followers of the said prophets. On the contrary, the last revealed book, the Quran, is extant in its original form. Allah himself guaranteed its preservation, and that is why the whole of the Quran was written during the lifetime of the Prophet Muhammad. May the blessings and peace of Allah be upon him. It was written on separate pieces of palm leaves, parchments, bones, etc. And moreover, there were tens of thousands of the companions of the Prophet who memorized the whole Quran, and the Prophet himself used to recite it to the angel Gabriel once a year and twice when he was about to die. Then the first caliph, 
Abu Bakr entrusted the collection of the whole Quran in one volume to the Prophet's scribe, Said bin Ibn Thabit. This volume was with Abu Bakr till his death. Then it was with the second caliph, Umar, and after him it came to Hafsa, the Prophet's wife. It was from this original copy that the third caliph, Uthman, prepared several other copies and sent them to different Muslim territories. The Quran was so meticulously preserved because it was to be the book of guidance for humanity for all time to come. That is why it does not address the Arabs alone in whose language it was revealed. It speaks to men as human beings. O man, what has seduced you from your Lord? The practicability of the Quranic teachings is established by the examples of Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and the good Muslims throughout the ages. The distinctive approach of the Qur'an is that its instructions are aimed at the general welfare from, of man and are based on the possibilities within his reach. In all its dimensions, the Qur'anic wisdom is conclusive. It neither condemns nor tortures the flesh, nor does it neglect the soul. It does not humanize, nor does it deify man. Everything is carefully placed where it belongs in the total scheme of creation. Actually, the scholars who allege that Muhammad, may the peace and presence of Allah be upon him, was the author of the Qur'an, claim something which is humanly impossible. Could any person of the 6th century of the common era utter such scientific truths as the Quran contains? Could he describe the evolution of the embryo within the uterus so accurately as we find it in modern science? Islamic recording. Islamic tape center in international languages and Islamic books. Riyadh also like Harun al-Rashid Street, Exit 16 East, Post Box 1419, Riyadh 11431, Telephone 2410615, Fax 2410595.